How do you embrace risk in your life today? Has this changed in recovery? And how can risk-taking be healthy for us and support our recovery? Welcome to episode 372 of The Recovery Show. This episode is brought to you by Renee, Mary, Carolyn, Beth, and Lilia. They use the donation button on our website. Thank you, Renee, Mary, Carolyn, Beth, and Lilia for your generous contributions. This episode is for you. We are friends and family members of alcoholics and addicts who have found a path to serenity and happiness. We who live or have lived with the seemingly hopeless problem of addiction understand as perhaps few others can. So much depends on our own attitudes and we believe that changed attitudes can aid recovery. Before we begin, we would like to state that in this show, we represent ourselves rather than any 12-step program. During this show, we will share our own experiences. The opinions expressed here are strictly those of the person who gave them. Take what you like and leave the rest. We hope that you will find something in our sharing that speaks to your life. My name is Spencer. I am your host today, and joining me today is S.A. Welcome to The Recovery Show, S.A. Thank you so much for having me, Spencer. I appreciate it. We like to open with a reading, usually from our literature, and you have chosen uh, to read from our daily reader, Courage to Change, on page 70, which is March 10th. Yes. Part of my recovery has involved reversing some old ways of thinking. It had been my habit to avoid painful feelings and situations, to play it safe, and to keep away from risk. But life involves one risk after another, and some pain is unavoidable. Elanon helps me to accept what is. Instead of running away, I'm learning to look at the source of my distress. As a result, I find that pain passes much more quickly, and what I gain is freedom from fear. Elanon gives me tools such as the fourth-step recovery with which I can take an honest look at myself and my situation. A supportive sponsor, my higher power, the serenity prayer, and many Elanon meetings help me to find the courage to deal with fear, pain, and risk. When I was avoiding taking risks, fear was always with me, just over my shoulder. Now I go through it and come out the other side, often unscathed. I no longer have to keep a constant watch for potential dangers. Instead, I can occupy myself with living. Today's reminder Wonderful things can happen today because I welcome the thrill of participating in my own life. Avoiding danger is no longer safe in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. Helen Keller. I totally identify with that second sentence. It had been my habit to avoid painful feelings and situations to play it safe and keep away from risk. So how do we get from there? Where do we want to start in this conversation? One thing that for me has been very helpful in my own recovery and in my life in dealing with risk is to look at how much mental bandwidth it has taken for me to avoid it. How heavy, I would say, that the pain and suffering is in my life if I don't look at it and then come out the other side. Sometimes we come out unscathed, 
Other times we don't. But taking the risk to grow is never wasted energy. And speaking only for myself, in my recovery, I choose to move forward always if I can. And if I don't look back at what may hold me back, then there's no way that I can drop that baggage and keep making progress toward the person that I would like to be. How about you, Spencer? It makes me think back over much of my life and ask, where have I taken risks? Where have I avoided risks? And what did that feel like, I think? One of the things that I see when I do that, I look at my career path, which has almost always been the path of least risk, hanging on to a situation sometimes perhaps longer than was good for me because it was there. It was comfortable. And stepping outside of that was scary. Yes. I never wanted to move forward until I could see very clearly the path ahead of me. So, yeah, this is a tough one for me. I like this quote, though, that you pulled. A ship in the harbor is safe, but that's not what ships are for. I think I've spent a lot of time in the harbor. So I'm trying to think of times when I took a risk. And I think that the last time that I took a big step in my life that I didn't really know how it was going to work out was when I went to grad school. <laughs> and that was a long time ago for me. I picked a school without ever visiting it because they had a program that was what I was interested in, and they were one of the few places in the country that did. It was more than halfway across the country from where I grew up and more than halfway across the country from where I went to college. I applied. I got in. I got accepted. I did get a little bit of fellowship money so that I could actually afford to, to do it. And then my wife at the time and I packed everything in our little station wagon with a U-Haul behind and drove across the country. And I guess we did have housing arranged before we got there. And that was an adventure, but I had made arrangements to be safe at the end. I just didn't know for sure how it was going to work out. The other thing that, that I think about is when I got married to my current wife, we were able to take a, a long uh, vacation in Europe. We were a little bit older. We had some money and we were both academics. And so we had the, the summer off, basically. We would show up at a city on a train and there was... There would be a booth or whatever in the train station where you could go and find a place to stay. So we would go from one city to another, not knowing where we were going to stay. And that was actually a lot of fun. In context, I, I was able to take some risks, I guess. Yeah. That's fascinating. I love hearing um, stories like that. I guess we all have days where we dream about doing things like that. But looking at the recovery show... Mm -hmm. And your decision to start the recovery show, and here we sit, this show reaches thousands of people. And I can't help but wonder, though, your thought process in deciding to do that, because that's a risk on so many levels that was risk-taking. And so 
Could you share with us that process and how you went about determining that this was something that was worth the risk to you to take because of the benefit that it potentially stood to achieve? Sure. Yeah. You're right. That, that, that was a risk. There was some other risks that led up to that. How did that happen? So I asked a guy to be my sponsor because the sponsor that I had before moved away and, and I went to somebody local. And he said, okay. He said, and I do this podcast, recovery podcast. His is an AA focus. And, and I'd like you to come be a guest on it with me. Of course, my first reaction was, what? No way. <laughs> but I did. So that was the, the beginning of it. And then I would be bringing some Al-Anon to, to his podcast, which really most of the listeners were in AA recovery, not Al-Anon recovery. And we started getting questions from people like, what is this Al-Anon? I don't understand this Al-Anon stuff. And I said to him, you know, what if we did an episode about Al-Anon? And he said, what if you did a podcast about Al-Anon? That kind of blew my mind. Can I do this thing? Can I do this whole thing? I talked to a couple of friends and we decided to give it a try. And yeah, it was not comfortable at first, but we did it. And then those two friends, after about a year, decided they, they couldn't continue doing the podcast. So there was another risk. Can I do this thing on my own? And I really didn't know if I could do it on my own. And there's been a journey there of discovering that, yeah, I actually can do it on my own. And when we started out, and I think this may be true for most people who start a podcast. Is anybody listening? And when we got to 100 downloads, wow, people are listening. I looked at my, my download statistics recently, and what I'm seeing now is somewhere around 20,000 downloads for each episode. That's amazing. I know. It's like a, a person that I listen to says, when you think about your numbers, try to visualize it as a room full of people. So if you've got 100 people listening, that's like a large lecture hall or maybe a moderate-sized lecture hall. If I've got 20,000 people listening, that is larger than the basketball arena here, okay? I was going to say, that's a stadium. <laughs> it's Well, see, yeah, depending on your stadium. See, my stadium is 100,000 people. I'm not there. But yeah, if I think about that, if I think about actually, if I was standing in front of a stadium or an arena with 20,000 people, like, I would be scared. I would be so nervous. But I don't see those 20,000 people. They're not in front of me right, right. now. Right. <laughs> but yeah, it is a risk. You're right. You're absolutely right. And sometimes this is one of the beauties of the program for me is people outside of me help me to see things about myself that I yes. can't see myself, you know? Yes. I think that's universally true. I think that we don't live life in a vacuum and we don't live recovery in a vacuum. It's the people who reflect back to us or who love us enough to share with us their perceptions of us, good and sometimes not good, that really helps us to see the holistic approach to our life. At least that's been true in my life. If I simply look in the mirror at what 
I perceive, then that's an important part of the equation. And I don't want to downplay that. However, there is a, a vast amount of information that people who love and care about me can share as well. Yes, I agree that it's others' perception that helps us to truly be an integrated person and not only see the way that we see ourselves, but also the way that we're projecting and showing up in the world. One of the things that I think in recovery is that we don't realize the risks that we've already taken. I think it takes risk to walk into a meeting, an Al-Anon meeting for the first time. It takes um, courage and it is somewhat of a risk to share in an Al-Anon meeting for the first time and maybe every time. For some, every time they share is taking a risk. Certainly working the fourth step takes tremendous courage and it is risk-taking to fully evaluate ourselves with rigorous honesty. Rigorous honesty takes a lot of risk, I think, and a willingness to have the courage to evaluate where we stand in life and where we want to be. And is that congruent? Or is there some disparity that we really want to work toward growth? The fifth step. Um, mm-hmm. Just, I think that risk-taking is interwoven throughout the program. It's just an inherent part of it. Would you agree? Definitely. Now that you've pointed them all out to me. (laughs) Yeah. As I've said before, when I walked into my first Al-Anon meeting, I consciously and deliberately chose a seat right by the door. I think we all do. In case I needed to escape. Right. And when in my second meeting, somebody who worked at my kid's school showed up, I seriously considered leaving, (laughs) not understanding yet that we were all there for really the same reason, that we were all there because there was somebody in our life whose alcoholism had affected us. Right. All I saw was, oh my God, she's going to know. But I stayed. I took that risk. When I did my fourth step inventory and and my first fifth step sharing. I did that in a structured way. I did that in the context of a small group where we were all working through the steps together. I think that for me reduced the feeling of risk because we were all mutually taking that same set of risks together and gradually uncovering ourselves to each other, developing that trust that makes it possible to take that next step. Yes. And I think that essentially what I heard was that each of you had skin in the game and that you were going through the same process individually. And it's unique for all of us, of course, because we are individuals. Essentially, you were all putting it on the line a little at first, a little more. Then a mm-hmm. little more. Mm-hmm. And that's what we do. In pro- I mean, I think that for myself, had I walked into the program and started on step four, <laughs> I would have sat in the, in the back of the room and I would have run from the back of the room and never darkened the door of an l meeting again. And thank goodness that we don't start with step four. Oh my. We start with step one. 
and just coming to to grasp the concept that as you said we're all moving in this same direction we're at varying levels but that disclosure doesn't start immediately it is a process when we begin to work the steps and thank goodness a couple of the things i found interesting in researching this topic there were some risk taking synonyms that i can share with you courage brave deed daring action but what more informed my understanding of risk taking and the value that it adds to my life were the risk taking antonyms mm-hmm. cowardice meekness timidity when I look at it as open, closed, off, all in, it's either or, and I've got to choose. I can choose to take risks and be brave and daring in my own life and showing up in my own life, living my life, as the reading said, or I can be the opposite. I can be cowardice, meek, timid, and I think most of us at one point or another in our lives have had to act in a heroic way, in a life-saving way. That doesn't require much thought. (laughs) You don't really think about it. You just do it. In my situation, it was my niece, my very young niece was drowning. You do it. You don't think. And so I think it takes much more courage to take risks where we are, because you do think it takes a a decision. You have to decide that you're courageous enough to take the risk to grow in this program. And so in an odd way, it's actually more difficult to risk when we have to go through that process and make that decision. Because you're right when you said earlier that we all want to be that ship in the harbor. That's where we want to stay. I do believe it's human nature. I do not believe it's unique to us in program. But there's a cost if we do that. There is a cost if we, you know, don't take on and sail our ship wherever we decide it needs to go. And the cost is that antonym cowardice, meekness, timidity. Social psychologists, and I'm not a psychologist, by the way, disclaimer, (laughs) but social psychologists have done some research. And it's interesting what they discovered is that most people at the end of their life regret the risks that they did not take more than they regret the risks that they did, even if they failed. Because I guess if you don't achieve what you had hoped when you take that risk, you learn from it. And you can say, I did it. I tried. Mm -hmm. As opposed to, I would think on, at least on my deathbed, I do not want to be saying, but what if I would have tried? What if I would have extended myself and gotten out of my safety box? A safety box, it's, it's your little world is very comfortable, but it doesn't necessarily impact the world in a bigger way as we potentially stand to when we're willing to take risks. Mm-hmm. It's interesting that you had said that professionally risk-taking 
was difficult for you. And I'm the opposite. Risk-taking professionally was never my issue. I, I started small and then I began to realize that it's not so bad when you fall down or when you get kicked down, <laughs> whatever the case may be. It's not so bad. I, I learned from it. I'll get up. I'll dust myself off. Personally, risk-taking has been a challenge in my life. It's something that I don't want to do. And I am not proud to say that, but it's something that I choose to do today, but it is not my default. I am not a risk taker. Is it worth it? Absolutely. It's worth it, but it's difficult and it can be scary. Mm -hmm. So I, I just think that it's really interesting that if we look at our whole life in different segments, that there are some areas where risk-taking just isn't that big of a deal to us. In other areas where it's, no, I can't do it. I won't do it. You can't make me do it. And yet, when we begin to take those risks, rigorous honesty, step four, step five, making amends, you name it, it's just all woven in and out of our program. And when we do that, we gain so much. Yeah. Maybe it's clear to a listener at this point that we're not necessarily talking about extreme behavior. We're not talking about climbing El Capitan with no experience and no ropes. There are people that do that, but they work up to it. We're talking about Healthy risk taking is, I yes. think, is the expression that you used here. Yes. Um, not encouraging anybody to, to go out and take up base jumping or whatever. Absolutely not. <laughs> uh, <laughs> if you're doing that, we're not saying stop doing it. We're not telling you to, to get out and do something you've never done that is, is at risk to your life or health, I think. Absolutely. Absolutely. In fact, it's interesting that you say that. Because there is a definition of positive risk-taking, and it's that it benefits the individual's well-being. In other words, the person stands to gain something. Its potential costs are mild in severity. In other words, there is no threat to health or safety, and it's socially acceptable. That's from Duell and Steinberg 2019. We want to make sure to note that is how they define positive risk-taking. And absolutely, we're not talking about anything that would put life or safety in jeopardy. Yeah. So, trivial example here. I was, some years back, was working with the high school kids in my church, and we took a summer trip to an amusement park. There was a ride there that basically shot you 400 feet up in the air in a sort of a roller coaster and then straight back down. Uh, and one of the kids challenged me to take that ride in the front seat where you end up 400 feet in the air looking straight down oh. as, yeah, that's a risk because it's scary. Exactly. We have confidence that, in fact, the ride is safe, that if there was anything that could cause harm, serious harm in particular, that they would shut the ride down. And they have done that, shut it down for various reasons. I took that risk, and it was 
exhilarating. It was also scary, but it was exhilarating. And so if I look at your notes here, okay, benefits to individual well-being, what it got me was, one, like this huge adrenaline rush, okay? And I'm sure there's endorphins and everything that comes along with that. Sure. Two, it also gained me this knowledge that I could do it. I wouldn't have chosen to do it, but I could do it. Potential costs are mild. Yeah, okay. There was a little bit of like <gasps> at the top, but there was not a threat to health there. And certainly it's socially acceptable. There was a huge crowd of people waiting in line. On the other hand, this same amusement park has some old wooden roller coasters that are very rough rides. And I think they deliberately make them rougher than they need to be. But I will not take those now because I've already had one surgery to my neck and I don't want to have another. Um. And so in that case, the cost, the potential cost is not mild. The potential cost is, even though I might enjoy it, it might give me that, that adrenaline endorphin thing, but it could also cause some significant damage to my health. And then I'm not going to do that. Uh, and so for me, that's okay. How do I balance that? Yes. Other people will balance it differently. I've decided to stop downhill skiing for similar reasons. I, I really enjoy it. I'm okay at it. But all I, I know is that all it takes is one bump in the wrong place, one tree that I can't avoid. And I'm at the age where that could cause some significant, I mean, even younger, it could, okay? And in fact, the next surgery I had was due to a skiing accident from 30 years earlier. So we make different choices at different points in our life. Absolutely. Absolutely, we do. And I think that just listening to that description, which is so, that's such a great example that it's not just about age. I think for myself, although I'm certainly in that that range also, but I think part of the evaluation for me for taking risks of that nature, not so much emotional risks as physical risks, is self-care, which mm. I have gotten much better at in recovery and not giving in so much to everyone else is doing it, being able to stand up for myself and say that for a number of reasons, I can't do things like that anymore. There are things I would love to do that because of my years running, I can't do those things anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And it's not smart for me to take the risk to do it because I know where I'll end up either walking in a boot or with surgery or whatnot. So Part of that self-care for me in evaluating what risks, and it's a, a cost-benefit evaluation, I think. This is what I stand to gain, but this is what I could lose. And at least in the physical round today, because of my age and because of my past experiences that with injuries, et cetera, I just don't choose to take some risks today. The benefit isn't worth it. And I think that this is also true when we look at emotional risk-taking, mm -hmm. at least for me, but I would venture to say for most of us, that we do an, an, an evaluation, whether it's informal or maybe formal, sitting down and putting pen to paper. This is what I stand to gain. This is what I stand to lose. Is it worth it? And then we make a decision based off of that. One of the sayings that I really love, it, and I equate it to risk-taking, but maybe it's just me, 
Brene Brown is not a program person, but she has so many wonderful topics that she covers that that interlock to me with recovery, at least for me. And one of the sayings that she has, and I want to get it right, it's, if you're not in the arena also getting your ass kicked, your feedback is not important to me. And I've learned today to say, this is what I'm going to do. This is the risk I'm going to take. And I'm not going to worry about what other people think of me. This is my life, my singular life. And on that deathbed, it will only be me looking back and saying, I'm glad I took that risk or I should have taken this risk. And so one thing that I've gotten better about is worrying about what other people may think if I do or don't take a particular risk or be vulnerable. That's a risk, in my opinion, certainly for me, as I shared earlier. When you say you're getting better at it, you mean that you're taking that less into account? Yes. What other people think? Yes, very much. I think that in part of that may be age, but I think a lot of it, much more of it is recovery and just getting healthier. But absolutely, that I know and appreciate and respect, underscore respect, that only I can decide what risks I need to take in my life because Mm -hmm. it is my life. And as Mm -hmm. long as I'm not hurting other people, and that's really important to me, though, to respect that I can't just say, I'm doing it. I have to make sure that it's something that's not going to have a negative impact on others, because that's just part of being a responsible, healthy person. But yes, the, the fear of failure that I may have struggled with, the fear of embarrassment, the fear of looking bad, the fear of not being enough, all of those fears. Oh, man. man. Yeah. All of those. (laughs) All of those fears. I have learned to turn the dial back on, and thanks to the program. And if I do start to realize that I'm taking other people's opinion of my actions or what I should do too seriously, I go back and I read that. Renee Brown saying, because it just grounds me back. Okay. That's true. That I am in this arena of my life. You're in the arena of your life, Spencer, and everyone else is too. Mm-hmm. And you ultimately are responsible to yourself for living up to what you know intuitively to be right for you. I am intrigued by this question that you wrote here. Once we really embrace our own recovery, why is it no longer safer to avoid risk? Can you give me a little bit what you were thinking when you wrote that? Sure. I guess what comes up for me with that question is going back to what we discussed earlier about that cost-benefit analysis. What consequence do I pay? <laughs> when I stay in the the harbor, it, it's a high, a very high price in some situations. If I don't take the risk of being vulnerable with the people in my life 
that I love, even though it's scary for me and it's very difficult for me to do that. But if I don't, what's it going to cost me? What's it going to cost them? What's it going to cost our relationship? Yeah, okay. I would submit that as hard as it is to take the risk, to be authentic, my authentic self, the the payoff is so much greater today. Being able to just say, this is who I am. This is who I am. And so that was what I had in mind. And it correlates back to our reading, which says avoiding danger is no longer safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing by mm-hmm. Helen Keller. And I think that is the question that came up for me as I read that. Why is it not safe any longer when we're in program to stay in our safe place? And the saying that when we know better, we do better comes to mind. Like once we know, we can't unknow. And once we get in program and we start learning, we know we have tools and we start to learn about recovery, we can choose to stay where we were when we came into program, but there will be a cost for that, but we can choose it. But I think that's what I had in mind. Yeah. I think in recovery, coming to know myself better, coming to learn, interesting word there, learn what I like, what I want, what I enjoy, as opposed to the things that I thought I should want, should like, should enjoy, or that somebody that I was codependently enmeshed with wanted, liked, or enjoyed, and I didn't. I think it it can be risky. It is risky sometimes to step out and say, you thought this was who I am. I thought this was who I am, but I'm actually not that. I'm this. That's a huge risk because that could break a relationship potentially, or at least make it different than what it was. When I say, I'm, I am this and I'm not that anymore. And I really never was that. What, what I lose if I don't do that is really being myself. I'm still subordinating myself to the opinions of other people, which, you know, is one of the things that brought me to the misery that brought me to the program in the first place. Yeah. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Can can I read something from Paths to Recovery? It's page 47, and it ties into to what you just articulated perfectly, I think. So I'm reading from page 47, Paths to Recovery. The four-step inventory was a formidable challenge. It would have been easier to hide and isolate. I could have continued to deny unpleasant and painful truths. Fears were ever-present. I wondered if I did the inventory, would the people close to me want to stop being around me? Would I have to get a divorce? Would I have to confront people? Would I like myself when I was done? Being a people pleaser, risking others' approval was extremely uncomfortable. My recovery required that I be willing to risk someone else's approval to gain my own. 
It meant that instead of trying to live up to an outside standard, I measured my success by my own yardstick. Each spiritual awakening added another measure of light to my life. Yeah. My recovery required that I'd be willing to risk someone else's approval to gain my own. Yeah, that's what I said. (laughs) It's exactly what you said. (laughs) That's what I heard. That's what I heard anyway. And also, I really love, I measured my success by my own yardstick. And I think you're right. When we make a decision in program to be who we are. And if I can share my first meeting ever, something revolutionary happened because in my life, especially in my younger years, there was the alcoholic in my life. That person's mood determined everyone else in the family's mood. If it was a good day, everybody was happy. If it was a bad day, everybody was not happy. And, And this was when I was much, much younger. When I went to my first Al-Anon meeting as an adult, I walked into the meeting and someone um, had a share that they were having a bad day. It was a bad place. And there was compassion. There was empathy. But then the next share, someone was having a fabulous day. And they shared that with no apology. And I, I think that's what hooked me to see that I was in a place where it was okay to be wherever you were individually, as opposed to letting one particular personality determine the, the perspective of the, the whole group. That's when I knew that I was home, that I was in a place where I needed to be, because it was okay to be who you authentically were at that particular moment in time, it's what I initially loved about Al-Anon and what I continue to love about Al-Anon is that we can just show up where we are. Wherever we are without expectations being put on us. Correct. I think the person who puts the most expectations on me when I'm at a meeting is, guess who? Yeah, me. (laughs) (laughs) I understand. I understand perfectly, Spencer. I don't think it's just you, and I don't think it's just me. I think most of us are that way. After I'd been in in program for a while, I'd done the 12 steps. I was sponsoring people, and, you know, I got this recovery thing, and I'm supposed to come into a meeting, and I'm supposed to exhibit positive recovery every time I share. These are the expectations that I put on myself. Right. But what you said about the acceptance of people where they are meant that, means that. When I'm not in a good place, when I need support in my recovery or I need support in my life, I can go to a meeting and I can cry and I can say, I don't know what to do. And I'm just as accepted as when I'm maybe more. (laughs) I don't know. I don't know what's really going on in other people's, but I know what I feel. And the the time when my kid was in college and had been, I'll say, admitted to a locked psych ward as a danger to self or others, I went to my meeting that night and I 
cried. I said, my, my child is in the psych ward. I'm flying across the country to be with him. I don't know what to do. And I felt that love and acceptance from the other 50 or 60 people in the room. We're there with you. Even though maybe nobody, I mean, nobody said anything right away because the meeting doesn't do crosstalk. And even if nobody said anything after the meeting, and I'm sure people did, I really don't remember. I could go there and I could be the person that I was at the time. I didn't have to put on a brave front. If I didn't have to be the person who, when somebody throws out the, how are you today? And I don't have to say, fine, when I'm not. Could I imagine of having done that before I found that space of our meetings? Before I had the experience of being vulnerable and being accepted and having people be vulnerable back? I don't think I could have. I really don't. I know that I'm similar experience when I was in the process of losing my mom, and it was imminent, but we weren't there yet. But it was, every day was a blessing to continue to have with her. And I went to an Al-Anon meeting and just spoke about gratitude Mm. through (laughs) boo-hooing. And it wasn't pretty. It was not. It was like ugly tears but talked about how grateful I was for every day that I had with her and that I had left with her. And you're right. There is something in those rooms that even though we don't do crosstalk, we can feel the compassion and the support and the understanding and the love from people that are in those rooms. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's something that we can get that in other places in our lives. But for me, this it, the Al-Anon rooms are just, there's something about that common bond that we have where you just feel like people truly understand what you're going through and they're healthy enough to know that they can't do anything about it. Only you can, but they can support you through that process. And that's a beautiful thing. One of the things that many of us have found in working, particularly in working the steps, but in working our program, is the support of the higher power that is spoken of in step two, a power greater than ourselves that can restore us to sanity. And I wonder for you, how does that higher power that you have found help you to accept the risks, to embrace the risks that that you see in front of you? In so many ways. (laughs) Let me say that, first of all. There are so many ways, but specifics. My sponsor early on, I guess we were going through step three, or maybe step two, had me write down the attributes of my higher power as I saw my higher power. And then also, if I could have any attributes associated with my higher power, what would they be? Because of a lot of the background that I was raised in, the attributes 
for the higher power that I perceived at that moment wasn't anything that really highly motivated me to trust and to feel safe. You know, a lot of judgment or a lot of not enough. Through working the steps and really starting to take a a look at who my higher power shows up as in my life. So not what I've been told my higher power was, but what I know, what I've experienced my higher power to be in my life. I was able to come to realize that my higher power really had all of those attributes that I had longed for. And that to some extent, it was my own limited thinking that was keeping me stuck back with the negative perceptions. And so working with my sponsor, I was able to truly come to embrace that my higher power knows what is best for me, can communicate what is best for me when I listen and when I allow my higher power to do that, that I have to be willing, can support me. When I'm scared (laughs) and I I get scared taking risks, emotional risks all the time. Still, after all of these years of doing it, I still get scared. So can support me. An experience that I had recently was that I had taken a number of emotional risks consecutively over a course of days. And I went to bed one night and just was agitated and couldn't find peace. Finally, I just stopped and tuned in to my body. And it's like, what do you want me to know? What are you trying to tell me here? I I call it my inside voice. The voice that I heard coming back to me was, who do you think you are? Who do you think you are? Taking these risks, doing these things. Today, I know the only sane answer to that question is, I'm who my higher power says I am. Hmm. I am who my higher power says I am. My higher power says that I am loved. My higher power says that I'm safe. My higher power says that I'm enough. I'm enough. All of these things that I need to hear, there's a part of me that isn't healthy, that will keep me tapped down and will keep me from growing, that doesn't want me to take the risks, that is comfortable being in the box. And then there's my higher power who's saying, take a chance. You can trust me. Do this. And I I have an acronym that I've developed for risk. There isn't one. And so I made up one for myself. And it It helps me to go over my acronym when I'm feeling particularly vulnerable as I was at that time. And my acronym is that I am resilient, I am industrious, I am strong, and I am knowing. I'm resilient. I am not made of glass. And I don't have to act as though I'm fragile. I am made of steel. I can bounce back if I'm dropped. If I make a mistake, if I'm imperfect, if I'm human, I'm resilient, I can be okay. Industrious. I may not be able to figure it out, but between my higher power and me, we can. If I do 
take a risk and it ends up being a complete failure, my higher power can get me out of that. I will know how to solve that problem. I'm strong and that isn't something that I say egotistically. It's something that through consecutive risk-taking and my higher power being there for me, I've come to realize that I'm just not as breakable as I thought I was emotionally and that I'm knowing. And that doesn't mean that I know everything. It means that my higher power knows and I know how to tap into my higher power. I do that by listening. I do that by being quiet. I do that through meditation. My higher power can speak to me through other people. And so when I'm feeling afraid to take a risk, I just go through my little acronym and remind myself that short of jumping, you know, what what you talked about earlier, some of the physical risks that we don't want to take. But short of that, if it's an emotional risk, if it's not anything that is going to hurt someone else, then with the help of my higher power, I'll be okay. And if I feel led to take the risk, it's in my best interest to do it emotionally. And again, we're not talking about negative risk-taking here. It's really important to stress that. But emotional risk-taking, if my higher power is giving me the nudging that this is something where you stand to gain, this is going to help you, then I have a tendency to do it because that's the amount of trust I have in my higher power today. Yeah. A few years ago, I got a message that I needed to be more physically active to take care of my my health, my body. I was somewhat overweight. My blood pressure was up. My blood sugar was up. My endurance was down. I got out of breath going up a flight of stairs. And I realized that I needed to do something about getting more physical exercise. I took up running first on a treadmill at the gym. Actually, I started walking on the treadmill and then worked up to running a little bit. Set myself a goal of doing something that I had never done in my entire life. So I was around 60 at that point of being able to run a 5K. Actually run a 5K. I'd walked 5Ks, but I'd never run one. And then after I'd been working up to being able to run at a a moderate pace on the treadmill for a half an hour. I started doing some running outside and I signed up for a race. Again, never did this before in my life. Signed up for a race. That was a risk in many ways. Can I do this physically? Can I get myself to the point where, where I can run five kilometers, a little over three miles on a course that actually it went up and down some relatively steep hills because running in the gym, it's like flat. (laughs) Running in my neighborhood, it's pretty flat. And so I had to go out and run that course a few times to convince myself I could do it. But I think I did that after I signed up. So there was a risk. And the risk was mostly to me, to my pride, if you will. But the benefit was better health and finishing 
that race mm-hmm. with actually the best time I had ever run that distance. Okay. And it was still, it was not an amazing time by any stretch of the imagination. There were a lot of people who came in ahead of me and there were a lot of people who came in behind me, but I felt good. I yes. felt good about it. And if I hadn't put myself out there, if I hadn't taken that risk, which was partially emotional and partially physical, I, I would not have gotten there. I haven't done it since. And I don't know if that's okay. I did this thing. I don't have to do it again. But also the next year I had neck surgery and, and that put me off running for quite a while. Right, right. Uh, and I haven't gotten back to that, that, that state of health. And then pandemic and all kinds of crap. Yes. <laughs> but, Life happens, doesn't it? It really right. does. Down here, you have written, Several times in bold, feel the fear and do it anyway. And that's where right. I was on that. Can I do this? I don't know if I can do this at all. But and I did, how did you? And how did you feel? You touched on it. And I think I understand. But that feeling of doing something that is that hard and that the outcome is uncertain, that how did that make you feel? Having done it. So the day of the race was cool and rainy. I really didn't notice that I was cold, that I was wet. Because, yeah, I had done this thing. I had I had this anticipation metal hanging around my neck, and, and I'm walking around, and it's... I don't remember exactly what the temperature was. It might have been 50 degrees out, and it was raining, and I was cold, and I was wet, and I was wearing a T-shirt and shorts, and I didn't care. That's how that felt. And then I rejoined my family and we went into a coffee shop where I could huddle over a a nice warm uh, latte or something and warm up. But at the moment, I wasn't feeling that cold and that wet. It just wasn't. So the emotional benefit was huge. And like proving to myself that this thing that I could never do my whole life, like... When I was a kid in high school, we always had the president's fitness test every year, and I struggled with running 600 yards. Okay. <laughs> that was my, my least favorite day of the year was when we had to do that run because it just was not something I could do. So, yeah, feel the fear and do it anyway. Yes. Um, and I think that's, I didn't create that saying. Um, but you wrote it. That was <laughs> I wrote it several times, didn't I? A lot of times. <laughs> it's not a saying that's unique to me, but when I heard it years ago, it really resonated and I've I embraced it and I've carried it with me. And I think that when it comes to taking risks, that's probably in a nutshell, if you want to distill it down to its most, you know, common denominator, feel the fear and do it anyway. If you're feeling the nudging from your higher power, if you have prayed about it, if you have meditated about it, if you are feeling this urge or yearning to do this, I believe that intuition is simply our higher power talking to us and telling us, the light's here. Here's your next step. Take this step. That's what I believe intuition to be. At least it has been in my life. So I think that when we feel that, we're going to feel the fear right along with it. But going back to that cost-benefit analysis, the greater the fear, sometimes the greater the reward. Because we feel when you cross that finish line, you signed up, you'd only 
ran in the gym and it's very different being outdoors versus being in the gym where it's climate controlled and all that. You signed up, you trained, you did it, and you crossed the finish line. I did. And that feeling, it it has the, it was a huge risk, but it was also a huge reward. Mm -hmm. And guess what? I believe that makes it easier next time for us to take another risk because suddenly we have a database in our brain that I did this once. I've taken a risk and I succeeded or I took a risk. I didn't succeed, but I learned this and this. And so it's sequential. It becomes easier the next time around to have faith in ourselves to okay. take that step. Okay. So important. And when we talk about, I don't know, reasonable risks, I don't know exactly what the phrase was, but unreasonable risk. An unreasonable risk would have been signing up for the half marathon that ran at the same time. Right. Because I probably would have seriously injured myself and not finished. Right. Yeah. I'd like to close up here today, and there's so much more we could talk about. There really is. There's a reading in the book, Courage to Change, November 23rd. It's on page 328 that I feel it gives us a little bit of a, almost a how-to for ways to, to start taking risks in ways that are healthy for us. How often have I had a dream I longed to pursue but quit before I started because it seemed too enormous a task to attempt? Going back to school, moving, taking a trip, changing jobs, all these and many other goals can seem overwhelming at first. Alanon reminds me to keep it simple. Instead of approaching the task as a whole, I can simplify it by taking only one step at a time. I can gather information and do nothing more. Then, when I'm ready, I can take the project further. That takes some of the pressure off, having to know all the answers and solve every problem that may arise before I've even begun. I'm also free to try something and then change my mind. I do not have to make a lifetime commitment before I even know whether or not my goal is desirable. My plans may involve many actions and many risks, but I don't have to tackle them all today. I can take my time and move step by step at my own pace. By focusing on doing one thing at a time, the impossible can become likely if I keep it simple. And a reminder, with the help of Alanon and my higher power, I'm capable of many things I could not have even considered before. I may even be capable of pursuing my heart's desire. And the quote is, All glory comes from daring to begin by Eugene Ware. That first paragraph, all those things, yes, been there, not done that. And the idea of keep it simple and one day at a time, first things first, all those slogans that help me to understand that what looks like a huge leap is actually a bunch of little steps, each of which I can do. And when I'm done, I've accomplished this big thing. And if I get partway there and decide that's not where I want to go, it's okay to stop. Me too. That's right. After a short break, we will continue with our lives in recovery, where we talk about how recovery is working in our daily lives. I asked you to pick songs, and you did. you want to talk about the first one? Yes. The first song for today is Dina Menzel, Define Gravity. Something has changed within me. Something is not the same. I'm through with playing by the rules of someone else's game. Too late for second guessing. Too late to go back to sleep. 
It's time to trust my instincts, close my eyes and leap. I'm through accepting limits because someone else says they're so. Some things I cannot change, but till I try, I'll never know. That is perfect. Absolutely perfect. In this section of the podcast, we talk about our lives in recovery. How have we experienced recovery recently? I came from a meeting uh, half an hour before we met on Zoom. First Saturday of, of the month, one of the tables in the meeting is working out of the book Blueprint for Progress. And the topic of the day, so appropriate for November for many of us, is gratitude. It took me back from some of the sharings. I opened up my blueprint for progress that I had done many years earlier. I noted a couple of things. One is that there was a question that I had not written an answer for. The question is, what can I be grateful for when people make me angry? Either I totally ignored that question or I really didn't have an answer for it at that point. It's such a tricky kind of a question like when people are making me angry what am i grateful for one of the one of the people in the meeting shared i am grateful that i'm not a violent person i was like okay i can go there although i can be a verbally violent person in at least in the the sense of yelling when i'm angry and what i'm grateful for there is that this happens a whole lot less often than it used to because before I found recovery, when somebody made me angry, that is what happened. And it didn't have to even be a big thing that I was angry about. And and that that expression, someone making me angry, okay, there's there's some codependency right there. I can react angrily to something you say or do. You're not making me angry, okay? I'm making me angry in reaction to something that happened. So that's also a kind of a, a, a revelation. But my go-to before program was to scream, yell, pound the table, all those. Uh, and of course, my kids, my coworkers, uh, the people that I spend the most time with are the ones who are most often the recipient of that. So I, I'm not surprised that I didn't answer that question. And I am, yes, I am grateful that doesn't happen to the degree that it used to happen, and it doesn't happen nearly as often as it used to happen. And so I'm grateful for the progress, not perfection. Yes. Still happens occasionally. I still sometimes don't remember to press that pause button before my mouth opens, but it happens a lot less frequently. The other question that jumped out at me in that section on gratitude is, what are the top 10 things that I'm always grateful for? That's a tricky one. But what's interesting is these 10 things really have not changed in the almost, I think, a decade since I wrote them down, which is I'm grateful for my health. My health isn't what it was 10 years ago, but I'm still grateful that I have it. I'm grateful that I have a loving family. I'm grateful that I have a job that I like. That one's going to change in a couple of years because I won't have a job because I'm retiring. We'll see what I'm grateful for then. I'm grateful that I have a nice house to live in. I'm grateful for Al-Anon and 12-step recovery. Oh my God, that should be at the top of the list, maybe. 
I'm not sure whether I, I thought this was a prioritized list or just the order that I thought of things. I'm grateful that my wife supports me in the activities that I like to do that she's not interested in doing at all, and that I'm able to support her in the same way. We don't have to be one person welded at the hips or whatever. We can be separate people. We can come together and we can also have our own things. I think that's actually important for a healthy relationship. Agree. Future Spencer here with a note that this was recorded before my mother died. I'm grateful that my loved ones have their health. Mm -hmm. And that has changed, actually, because my parents, their health is, well, my father died this year. He didn't have any health left. But I can have gratitude for the fact that he was able to die in bed at home, not in a hospital hooked up to tubes that where we at that time probably couldn't have visited him. I'm grateful that he went peacefully and relatively quickly because he died of Alzheimer's as far as we can tell. And that can be a really ugly way to go. And it wasn't so much for him. So I'm grateful for that. You know, when I say my loved one's health, it's, it's always contextual, you know, that they have the health they do. I'm grateful for the program and the people in it. I'm grateful for my church community who have supported me in, you know, my journey of discovery of what the sacred looks like to me, not what somebody tells me it is. And I'm grateful for my friends. So those haven't changed, you know? And when the question says, what are the things I'm always grateful for? It's still true. And there probably are other things that are not on that list and only ask for 10. The meeting this morning was a really good you know, reminder for me that I have a whole lot of things to be grateful for in my life. And I don't always remember that. And so it's really good to be prompted every now and then. How is recovery working for you in your life? It's so interesting. The first question. Could you read the first question again, please? The one that I said, what can I be grateful for when people make me angry? Yes, yes. Yes. So this week in recovery for me um, has been interesting. I had a friend share with me a way in which her perception of me was not congruent in a particular area with my perception. And problem one, the way that I chose to react was not programmed to that problem two. Marinating on that this week, I've come to realize that risk-taking, if I take the risk and really look at this with rigorous honesty, I have to acknowledge, maybe not with problem one, that I completely agree with her, but with problem two in my character defect, and, and we want to believe that our character defects, once we work those steps and <laughs> work, we've done our amends then they're going. And at least in my case, I did not react in a program way. And I like to say my higher self way, I did not react that way at all. So there are two opportunities there for me. And so even though I was upset, I wasn't angry. I was surprised. And I was, I was defensive. I need to be truthful. I was defensive. Looking at both of those things, it's going to allow me to truly flesh out where I need to be working in program in those two areas. 
as much as I want to believe that once we work the steps, we're always going to take the higher road because I love to say I try to take the higher road because the view is better from there. (laughs) And it truly is. But I don't always do that. And I have to acknowledge that if I'm to grow. So for me, recovery this week has been primarily, that's the thing that comes up for me, is Mm. what I need to look at to to cross that next threshold in my own personal recovery, because I still have work to do. And I'm sure I will have work to do for the rest of my life, but at least I have a roadmap today of where I need to go next with my recovery. Thanks. We welcome your thoughts, your experience. Please, you can join our conversation. Leave us a voicemail or an email with your feedback or your questions. Essay, how can people send us feedback? You can call and leave us a voicemail at 734-707-8795. Call right now to 734-707-8795. You can use the voicemail button on the website to join the conversation from your computer. You can also send a voice memo or email to feedback at therecovery.show. We'd love to hear from you. Share your experience, strength, and hope, or your questions about today's topic of embracing risk. If you have a topic you'd like to talk about, let us know. If you would like advance notice for some of our topics so that you can contribute to that topic, you can sign up for our mailing list by sending an email to feedback at therecovery.show. Put email in the subject line to make it easier to spot. And our website is therecovery.show. We have all the information about the show there, which mostly consists of notes for each episode. And you can, as you may already know, play the podcast directly on the website. We have links to the books that we read from, videos for the music that was chosen, in this case, videos for the music that S.A. chose, and links to some other recovery podcasts and websites as well. We'll take a little break before looking at your feedback. And S.A., what is your second song? The second song is Doubt by Mary J. Blige, and it says, You think, but you don't know the half. You think you beat me down, but I'll have the last laugh. I'll keep getting up because that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to be the best me. I'm sorry if it kills you, but I can't keep doubting myself anymore. No. Oh, no. I can't keep doubting myself. And at least for me, that seems to me to be talking to not another person, but to my own self-doubt that keeps me from moving forward and having the courage to take risks. Let's start our listener feedback section with a voicemail from Paula Q. Hi, Spencer. This is Paula Q, and I am from Louisiana. I am interested in finding out if you have any podcast on when your qualifier becomes ill and terminal because they're in full cirrhosis due to the alcoholism, and they still won't stop drinking. I love the podcast. Thanks. It's done wonders for me, and I totally appreciate y'all. Thanks, Paula. That's a really hard place to be, and I'm sure that somebody is listening who has been there and might be willing to share their experience, strength, and hope that came out of that. 
I know that working the Al-Anon program gave me the ability to continue to love my wife as her alcoholism was spiraling down and not knowing how far it was going to go, not knowing if it was going to go to death or not. But I could be there in the moment with her. And yeah, so that, I don't know, that helped me. It did. Delette wrote, Dear Spencer, I'm a regular listener to The Recovery Show. I have found it most helpful in my own journey. I am relatively new to Al-Anon. I will celebrate my third Al-Anon birthday in February. The alcoholic in my life was my husband of 30 years. I did not grow up in an alcoholic home and had no exposure to any sort of substance abuse. My parents remained married for 60 years until my mother passed away at the age of 80. One thing that I have not heard discussed in your meeting so far is how do you deal with all of the feelings when your spouse or loved one finally dies of alcoholism? My husband died on May 5th, 2021. I came into the house and found him dead on the living room floor. It's a long story, but my husband had started to become verbally and sometimes physically abusive when he drank, so five years ago I moved to our second home two hours away. I still had daily contact with my husband, even though I had moved. I loved him very much, and I also hated him when he drank, and he was a total asshole to me. I have really struggled with my feelings since he died, and I go from knowing he couldn't do better than he did to raging at him for not doing better. It's an unanswerable dilemma. Anyway, I came to realize in Al-Anon that there were only two outcomes to alcoholism, recovery or death. That's it. If the alcoholic does not seek treatment, they will die. It's just a matter of time. I don't know why I didn't see that long ago, but I just didn't. That's a pretty heavy thing to have to wrap your head around. And I don't really see much discussion in Al-Anon that alerts us to the dire consequences of continuing to drink alcohol. My husband was very charming, and he was a very successful and well-known trial attorney. He was soft-spoken and seemed shy and was very quiet. If I even hinted at some of the abuse I was subjected to, nobody would believe me. It was so disconcerting for me, and I always felt that my husband's friends and family believed that I should do something to help my husband. That was so frustrating for me. There was nothing I could do. It was up to him to seek recovery and serenity. I did everything I could possibly do. I don't really have any guilt or regret or remorse surrounding my husband's death. I had to detach with love in order to keep my own serenity, but I have a lot of feelings around how badly he treated me, how much I used to love him, and how insane my life was. Anyway, I would love to hear a speaker talk about this subject. Thank you, Spencer. Keep up the good work on The Recovery Show. There are a lot of my Al-Anon colleagues who listen regularly to your show. Thank you again, warmly, Dillette. Well, thank you for sharing that, Dillette, and um, coming right after the voicemail from Paula, there's a must be a little higher power moment there. Also connecting to this very brief email from Darla. In a nutshell, adult son, addict, sister, suicide, 15, he was seven. My fear, pushing when he was a child, still afraid as an adult. Don't want repeat of losing child, Darla. I heard a little bit of something on the radio today was woman was talking about, I guess what she might have called it, unreasonable hope, can cloud our ability to be with our loved one as they're ill, as they're moving towards death. She was speaking about her experience with her partner who had a end-stage cancer of some sort, I think, and 
that there were still people who were like, there could be a miraculous recovery. It could just suddenly disappear one day. And she thought that unreasonable hope kept them from being able to really be present with her partner in her last days. And I think that's my experience too, that when I was able with the help of this program, with the help of the higher power that I found here, to let go of the fear of things that haven't happened yet, I was much more able to be present and to enjoy the time, enjoy the moment. And as it happens, the worst didn't happen. So I could have lived in fear, and then if the worst happened, then it happened. And if it didn't happen, then I would have all that time living in fear that really had no no result. I don't know. I'm not saying it very well, I think. But Jen left us a voicemail. Hi, this is Jen from California. I actually share quite often in my meetings about journaling and writing pretty frequently because I feel like it really helped my recovery a hundredfold. Because when I was going through something, I could just open up the book and I could just, whatever would pop into my head and out onto the paper would come out. And sometimes I would write a sentence and I would stop and I would reflect on it and I would think about it a lot. And then the next sentence would be on something completely different. And I found that it really helped me organize my thoughts. It helped me with my anxiety. It helped me, you know, okay, I don't really need to think about that. I already journaled on it. If I want to read it, I can go back and I can look at it. It's kind of like that making a list. We have to make lists for things so that we don't have to agonize over them. It's like that. There, there's a connection between the hand and the brain. I just feel like it took my recovery to a completely different level. I know that it, it can be very, like, daunting and, like, I don't even know what to write. That's the thing. You don't need to know what to write. You just write whatever comes into your head and out onto your hand and onto the paper. And um, that's what really helped me. So thank you. And thank you. Thank you, Jen, for sharing your experience about journaling. And it might be helpful to listener today, you know. Got a review in Apple Podcasts titled So Grateful. I found your podcast during COVID when my gym shut down and I started running at home. I can't begin to tell you how much this podcast helped me to not feel alone and to get some understanding about this disease. I'm so grateful for you and for every speaker that is on. The username that was on the review was basically unpronounceable, so I'm not even going to try to turn that into a, a person's name. So we'll say this is from Anonymous. And thank you for leaving that review because reviews help people who are considering maybe decide to listen when they read something that resonates with them in a review. So thanks. We have two shares from Alina, one on cooperation and balance, which was episode 135, and one on family, which was episode 137. Hi, this is Alina. I just wanted to share on episode number 135, which was about cooperation and balance. This was an interesting episode for me because sometimes I feel like I take on a lot of responsibilities at workload that more than I should, whether it be at home or especially at work. But Aladon has taught me that I can turn things over. I can definitely work with other people. I don't have a problem working with staff members. One thing that makes it difficult in my position is that although I have a lot of responsibilities, I guess I have a supervisor role and certain things don't get done 
a certain way or they don't get done, period, then I it's asked to me, like, why didn't this happen? And one thing that I do notice at, at my job is that there's really no like accountability for people that maybe don't fulfill their job duties. So what ends up happening is instead of addressing those people that are maybe doing it incorrectly or correcting them or showing them the proper way to do something, the management takes it upon themselves to just change it and make it somebody else's responsibility. And it usually ends up being my responsibility. So in a way, I feel frustrated and stuck. Sometimes I feel like that people need to learn. I mean, I would want to know if I'm doing something wrong and I would want to correct it myself rather than saying, oh, you know what, you didn't do it. So we're going to change the responsibility and only this other person can do it. I feel like I'm running in circles sometimes, but I know that my last work review, one of the things that they had mentioned is that I tend to be motherly and that I always want to take care of or when someone else is doing a job, I'll come through and go, oh, you should do this. Or I end up doing stuff myself. I try to make other people's job easier. I feel and they said that it's, that would be one thing that I could work on is maybe delegating things a little bit more. So I do try to do that. However, I feel like when I do that, there are certain people in my profession that want things done a certain way. And so just put it on my desk or say, hey, can you take care of this? Hey, can you take care of that? And so I feel like when someone does that, that I should really handle it rather than handing it off to someone else. I don't know if that's the right approach. It's still something I'm kind of like, it's new to me. So I'm still trying to work on that. But it does give me a little anxiety sometimes when I hand over things to other people. I'm trying to train this other person as well. She's trying to obtain a certification. So I'm trying to train her. And so giving her the responsibility is actually looking at it in a way of someone helping me. That's always a good perspective that works for me is not looking at it as I'm just going to hands off type of approach, but rather I could show someone how to do something. I can give them that responsibility in the future. And then it ends up benefiting me as far as one less thing off my schedule that I have to do. As far as at home growing up, I always had a list of responsibilities given to me by my parents and my grandparents that when I got married, the culture was I was to do everything. I was to cook and clean and take care of the bills and make sure that everything was in order and organized. And so for a long, long time, that was my mindset. That's what I did. It's just really hard to break that habit. But I notice within the last couple, maybe year to two years, my husband does help me out a lot. And all I have to do is ask. I don't have to get frustrated or overwhelmed or anything, which was the case that I used to be. I used to do that a lot, get like resentful and just act out and stuff and get frustrated and just feel annoyed most of the day. Now I can relax and know that it'll get done. And if it doesn't, then it's not the end of the world. And if I have to ask him for help, it doesn't mean that I'm less than or not capable. This topic was really good. Thank you for letting me share. I appreciate it. I hope everyone is safe and happy and healthy. Thank you. I just wanted to share on episode number 137, which was about family 
And basically, like, family of origin, in the overview, there was questions like, was there alcoholism or addiction? And was there codependency? And what did you learn in your family of origin? And about relating to other people, keeping secrets and stuff about love and how how did these affect your life before recovery? I think I've shared before that my dad was an alcoholic. Growing up when I was a little girl, obviously, you don't know what that is or what that means. You just, I know that he had a tendency to become really aggravated and agitated and vocal and stuff like that. And my mom and dad were together probably up until I was eight. And I had a younger sister that was four years younger than me. There was a lot of arguing. I just remember a lot of arguments and we're told to go to our room and that didn't really seem to make too much of a difference, I think, other than we felt protected in our rooms, like we could still hear the yelling and arguing. And it was just really scary. And so I think that totally affects me now as far as confrontation. And I don't really like hearing other people argue or people yell at me, like it really affects me. And so that's something that I've had to work on coming into this program. But also, I guess, I don't know, it just really was a sad situation. And I feel sorry for that little girl a lot of times. So that wasn't really what brought me into the program. It was actually the uh, addiction of one of my uh, best friends. So coming to realize that my higher power is always there for me is a good concept because I really feel like things happen for a reason. And, you know, that I ended up marrying an alcoholic too, that I didn't really know that's what he was. But I guess I can understand now that it's progressive and Al-Anon's taught me a lot of tools and how to focus on myself. So I feel like there was a lot of codependency and I still struggle with that with one of my qualifiers and I didn't realize that's what I was doing. I just thought I was caring and being supportive and loving person and I realized it's a lot of it's codependency and I just struggle with that still and I have to step back a lot. I don't really like the word. I don't know why just for some reason it just sounds I don't know like a weak term but I just have to learn to accept it and move on. And I know that it all, all the overview also asked your ability to take life on life's terms and your desire and need to control others and your environment. A lot of times I feel like if I'm not in control that I'm not doing things right and I want to be perfect and I want to do all these things, be organized and not be blamed for something. I guess the program's taught me a lot about stepping back and realizing that everyone has their higher power. I cannot control or change somebody. I can only do that for myself. And it's just a relief. It just takes a lot of weight off my shoulders. I mean, the as far as work goes, I'm in a position where I'm in a like a leadership role. And so that really is really hard to find a fine line because I'm responsible for people under me doing their job correctly and doing it right and just doing it period and sometimes that doesn't always happen and I get really frustrated and I just end up doing it myself and I know that I can't do that I have to hold people accountable and just not have to put so much on my plate because it does get overwhelming at times anyways I did like this episode about family and it made me think a lot about my dad and he's passed passed away quite a few years ago, about 16 years ago. So I have come to terms with everything and I did end up forgiving him, although he wasn't alive at the time because we didn't have a relationship. My sponsor helped me put things on paper and just, I have forgiven him. I understand things. I know that he had a disease. I know that didn't mean he didn't love me. I know that he did. Anyways, thank you for letting me share.
Thanks again, Alina. Thank you. Essay, what is the third song that you chose for us today? The third song is Taking Chances by Celine Dion. And the words say, What do you say to taking chances? What do you say to jumping off the ledge? Never knowing if there's solid ground below or a hand to hold or hell to pay. What do you say? There's some risk, huh? Thank you. Thank you, Essay. Thank you so much for suggesting the topic. Thank you for doing the work to flesh out uh, the topic with a bunch of stuff that we didn't actually have time to get to. But, you know, what we got to, we got to, and I think it was good. So thanks. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. And I would encourage others who have topic suggestions and who are interested to please reach out. You learn a lot about your own recovery during the process. All right. Yay. Yeah. Reach out. Feedback at the recovery.show. Say, I'd like to co-host an episode on topic X, where topic X could be telling your story, or it could be a topic discussion like we had today about embracing risk. So thanks again. Thank you for listening. And please keep coming back. Whatever your problems, there are those among us who have had them too. If we did not talk about a problem you are facing today, feel free to contact us so we can talk about it in a future episode. May understanding, love, and peace grow in you one day at a time.